Lady, I believe your son is the promised king of his people. What is his name? Jesus. His name is Jesus. In life, you know, we're all going to suffer storms. We all suffer setbacks. And it's amazing to me when you go to churches and people say, you know, become a Christian and your life will be a cakewalk. Become a Christian and God will take away your problems and your trials. And it's amazing. I can't find that in Scripture. In fact, when you become a believer, there's going to be trials. There's going to be pain. But he promises to be with you in the, in the storm. He promises to be with you. But he'll say things like, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Or any man that follows me and keeps looking back is not worthy to follow me. Sounds like there's going to be stuff. So it's not the avoidance of problems. It's being with Jesus in the problems. It's trying to have a deeper relationship with him. And you can get through those problems. And he is worth more and, and, and happiness and joy with him than the problems and the turmoil causes. Paul said that the, you know, all the affliction I go through in this life is not even worthy to be compared to the joy that's waiting in heaven. And if Paul could say that with all he went through, then that's pretty incredible. So we all have trials in life. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but think if you've ever had a time in life when you had one trial that alone, you're looking at this, you know, people going through this one trial, you're thinking, you know, maybe it's a divorce or the loss of a loved one or something. You're going, this by itself could do me in. But have you ever gone through a problem in life where a problem that could do you in was there and another one came along? At the same time, like you have a loss of a loved one and then you lose your job? Or you've lost your job and then you get sick and you have the loss of a loved one and your house gets foreclosed? I mean, when you have a lot of that stuff come along, it's not just one or two tough things. It's not just one or two storms. It's a frightening thing when circumstances seem to align in order to create what I call the perfect storm. Grace, moving north off the Atlantic seaboard, huge, getting massive. Two, this low south of Sable Island, ready to explode. Look at this. Three, fresh cold fronts swooping down from Canada. But the darn thing's caught a ride on the jet stream and is motoring hell-bent towards the Atlantic. Cool. Wait, wait, what if... What if Hurricane Grace runs smack into it? Add to the scenario this baby off Sable Island scrounging for energy. She'll start feeding off both the Canadian cold front and Hurricane Grace. You could be a meteorologist all your life and never see something like this. It would be a disaster of epic proportions. It would be the perfect storm. Down below. Yeah! That was nothing! Come on! 
intense, huh? Let's pray. I just wanted to show that movie to you. Get a little. Well, gang, a lot of things have to come together to make for the perfect storm, just like you heard there. There were three different storm fronts, and then finally a a dying hurricane that picked up strength, Hurricane Grace, and they all collided with that tiny little ship that was reduced to matchsticks, and that's all they ever found were little tiny pieces of wood of the Andrea Gale. Most people celebrate on this wonderful, a lot of churches are going to be celebrating. They're going to be doing little plays. They're going to be waving their palm branches. We have some here. We're not going to be waving them, but they're celebrating one event that took place on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode, according to Scripture, predicted into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey as the Messiah, as the King of Kings. And they were even saying that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Son of David. How many? Probably hundreds of thousands gathered. This was Passover. And historians and theologians say there could have been upwards of two million people gathered for the Passover. It's the biggest Jewish feast of the year. And Jerusalem's the city where they came. And they thought this was their king. And he was. So they gathered to welcome him. And that's a great thing. But you know what it was? It was just one of the elements of a perfect storm that was brewing that week. And so we look at these things, and and in the weeks ahead, we're going to do this at church. We're going to look at an element here. We're going to look at the uh, crucifixion. We're going to look at Jesus casting out the money changers from the temple. We're going to look at the trials that he went through, the mock trials. We're going to look at the denial of Peter. We're going to look at the betrayal of Judas. We're going to look at the Roman soldier at the cross. We're going to look at the resurrection. We're going to put all those elements together. We're going to look at Pontius Pilate, him trying to control the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. But what it really was was all these events together colliding in the biggest storm in all of history. And one man, the God-man, walks through that storm. Remember a few weeks ago I talked about the scarlet thread? All throughout Scripture, just woven. Well, this is where the scarlet thread is tied. This is the event that the scarlet thread is there for, from Adam and Eve to the cross to the resurrection. This is it. This is what culminates. And so it's all of history. Even Satan, this is Satan's moment because he thinks I'm going to stop this. And I'll tell you, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ and you see that Satan character, you know, just filled with joy when, 
when Jesus got to the cross, he thought it was over. I won. I won. But it really was just beginning, the beginning of the end for him and the beginning for us. So they all collide. And it, unlike the Andrea Gale that went up on that, if you saw that movie, at the risk of ruining it, but if you haven't seen it yet, get with the program. It's like 10 years old. So as they're going up that wave, they don't make it on that when the ship turns over and, and, it, and it kills all of them. And that's probably what happened. There were 100-foot waves in that storm. And that boat might have been able to ride out some of the 50-footers, but not that monster. And Jesus had, spiritually speaking and physically speaking and emotionally speaking, 100-foot waves hitting everywhere. And yet he walked right into the eye of the hurricane, right through the calm to the cross. Even his own disciples are trying to get him to not go to the cross trying to keep him from that. His friends, who didn't understand the agenda, and quietly he kept his eyes on the cross and kept walking forward. Today I want you to know what that means for you. Gang, a lot of things have to come together for anything to be perfect, good or bad. The perfect day, right? What makes a perfect day? I mean, think about it. It's different for you than me probably, but it's not one factor that makes for a perfect day. I doubt it's this weather in your mind. Probably didn't walk in today and go, this is the perfect day. I didn't. The perfect wedding. I mean, there's a lot, sometimes there's comedies on TV and they're funny because they're not the perfect wedding. A lot of things go wrong. But the perfect business deal, the perfect battle. I mean, we won because every, our plans are great. You know, the perfect crime. There's movies about that. And we just saw the perfect storm. Well, author and commentator N.T. Wright, I love to read him because he's a theologian, a commentator that, that has a way of going really, really deep but making it really easy and relevant for simple-minded people like me. He compares the singular storm to the forces that met in the last days of Jesus' life. He actually looked at this thing like the perfect storm. And the ingredients of that approaching storm, as he puts it, were this. Hurricane Grace would have been the oppressive Roman Empire. We didn't even factor them in. The Jews were not a free people. They were living under the the yoke of the oppressive Roman Empire, which governed the land and the combination of the high-pressure system of the legalistic religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are always dogging Jesus, and what I call the low-pressure system of the Sadducees, the religious authorities who dominated and controlled the lives of the common people, and then what N.T. Wright calls the wind of God. So there's all these things coming together on that week to perform the perfect spiritual storm. And it came to a head as the Passover feast approached in approximately A.D. 30 in Jerusalem, as depicted in this video segment from the Bible miniseries. Take a look. Passover is the biggest Jewish festival of the year. Thousands come to Jerusalem to thank God for releasing their ancestors from Egyptian slavery. Jesus' entrance creates a storm. The prophet Zechariah predicted that a new king of the Jews would enter the city on a donkey. 
Where is he now? He's just entered the city on a donkey. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Where's he headed? Towards the temple. This agitator from Galilee, he's in trouble. The crowds, how are they responding? Hmm? And the Romans, have they made any move yet? No. Well, so far. He must not interfere with Passover. God will bring his wrath down upon all of us. And who knows what Pilate will do if the crowds run out of control. Nicodemus, go with Malchus. If he enters the temple, watch him. Do not blink. I need to know everything. Go. Barabbas. temple is the holiest place in the Bible. During festival times, selling sacrificial animals and changing money has become a thriving business.
not written. Wait. Is it not written? My house. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you, you have made it a den of thieves. Who are you to tell us this? We teach the law, not you. You pray lofty prayers and love your shows of piety in the temple. Hypocrites, you cannot serve God and money. That clip that we just saw is from an epic video series that's on the History Channel. If you've had a chance to watch it, they're now caught up to the life of Jesus and we'll be tackling Palm Sunday tonight and then finally the biggest event in all of Christendom, the crucifixion and the resurrection next week. And we're following that series as a church and preaching along with it. The clip that we just saw obviously was about the storm that's coming together in the last week of Jesus' life, and nobody knew it. Everybody planned to either prevent it or help push it along, but they were all pawns. They were all really tools. Satan thought he was pushing those pawns around. God knew that he was. This illustrates, obviously, the perfect storm in Palm Sunday, and there were three interests that were arrayed against Jesus, and if you're a note-taker, I want you to get these down. I'm going to get to the first one in just a moment, and I promise I'll get all of these. Uh, they correspond to the great salvation that Jesus actually came to bring, and it's talked about in Hebrews 2.3. It's available for every one of us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is one of the few scenes described in all four Gospels of the Bible, this triumphal entry. Stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. This one's found in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, and then 45 through 48. Luke 19, 28 to 40, and 45, 48 if you want to follow along. <clears throat> After Jesus said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied up there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? In other words, why are you stealing it? They replied, just the Lord needs it. And that was good enough. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road in front of him. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. And Sometimes, you know, the History Channel gets it right. Sometimes they don't get it right. I don't think Barabbas would have been there, and I don't think it was an angry thing, and I actually don't believe Nicodemus would have approached him that way. Nicodemus became a believer. It says right here in Scripture it was joyful. They really thought their Messiah was coming. It's just that they thought he was coming for a different reason. They thought he was coming to take over the Romans and set up a kingdom and make them the chosen people again. He was coming for a far more important reason. 
And they said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they can't say that. And he said, I tell you, I love this. I want you to listen carefully to this. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they do keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out all those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. You've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple that whole week. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it. Now, why do you suppose that was? Because the people loved him. Masses of people loved him, and they're trying to find a way that won't make them look bad. Because all the people hung on his every words. Imagine that. You could be seated. Father, speak to our hearts this morning, Lord. Open the ears and the eyes of our hearts, Father, because this has become an event, Lord, in our culture, and as the week leads up to Easter, Father, we'll be pulling out Easter eggs and coloring them, and we'll be talking about an Easter bunny and so many things that point the way, just like we do when we celebrate your birth. We don't really celebrate your birth as much as we should, and we don't celebrate the greatest event ever when you died for us and rose again, conquering death. But help us to focus. Give us laser focus, God, on this event, that it might change our lives. Lord, help us to care enough for the lost in this week ahead to bring them rain or shine, to hear the gospel that can transform their lives. It begins here, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, that event's called the Triumphal Entry, and it's been celebrated by churches around the world as Palm Sunday for thousands of years, but there's far more going on that day than people really realize, as I have told you before. His entry into the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of that fateful week can even supply an illustration of three things that change our hearts when Jesus comes into our hearts. See, salvation comes into our heart, but not by human effort. In fact, maybe you've heard this before, but what's the difference between Christianity and every single other religion on the face of the earth? The difference in religions, if you think about it, is all about every religion, no matter what. I don't care if it's a cult. I don't care if there's five people in a room following something brand new or if it's an established religion, you know, like Islam or Buddhism. It's always about what you do, Right? to get God or the higher power, whatever's attention, right? Whatever, what you do that'll make him let you in or give you peace, as in the case of the Buddhists and Nirvana, but it's all you do. Christianity is about a different word. Add two more letters. Instead of do, it's done. That's the difference. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you could have done in that perfect storm to have prevented anything or to have helped yourself out in your own sinful condition. The only reason we can become believers is because Jesus walked through that storm to the cross. It's about what he did. It's about what's already been done. That one word makes all the difference. So it's not as a result of religion or even going to church, joining a small group, serving in 15 different ministries. It's not about self-effort like that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it's a result of relationship. Let me put it this way. A good marriage is not the result of a marriage license. A good marriage is not the result of a ring. It's not the result of a piece of paper. It's the result of you and your spouse having a good relationship and getting to know each other better and better and your commitment to one another. That's what really bonds a marriage together. If it was just a piece of paper, then you rip it up and throw it out like a lot of people do. So it's gotta be about the relationship of you and your spouse. That's where the power comes to hold it together. And a true living relationship with Jesus brings about things that no amount of religion could ever bring about. 
So for you note takers, and I, and I really hope and pray you all write this down, there's just three things today I want you to get. Here's the first one. When Jesus enters my life, forgiveness comes to me because he's my high priest. Now I know that doesn't mean anything right now. Let me unpack that a little bit. When Jesus enters my life, or maybe you've heard it this way, when Jesus comes into my heart, when I accept him into my life, well, when he comes in, forgiveness comes to me for this reason, because he's my high priest. And you're going, what does that mean? What does that mean? One of the elements in that perfect storm that eventually swept Jesus up to Calvary was a little group that you don't hear as much about. It's called the Sadducees. You hear a little bit about them, but they were the priestly party of Jesus' day. They were the caretakers of that temple we just saw in the video. And that temple was beautiful. At one point, Solomon's temple, the one built before that, was one of the seven wonders of the world. That's how incredible. So that depiction actually was pretty accurate. The thing was huge and beautiful and lined with gold and just magnificent. And that was in the Old Testament where they said God dwelled, even though God doesn't dwell in any house made with hands, that's where they said God dwelled. And the Sadducees, their whole job was to protect it and make sure the sacrifices were right and make sure it was holy and pure. They were the elite caretakers of the temple. The high priest at that time could have been a Pharisee, could have been a zealot, could have been a, could have been a Sadducee. At this point, it was a Sadducee that was actually the highest priest in the land. So you hear more about the Pharisees because they bugged Jesus the whole time. But occasionally you hear about the Sadducees. They were there, always there, but they were behind the scenes. The Sadducees were a whole lot quieter. They were the whispering campaign people. They were the gossips. They were sort of the power brokers that tried to make things happen without being obvious. In storm vernacular, they were more the low-pressure system is what I call them. And the high-pressure system were the Pharisees who were constantly different. They were in Jesus' face, challenging him, him all the time. In fact, think of them sort of as a nagging injury. If you're over 35, guys, raise your hands. All right, ever had a nagging injury? I don't see a lot of nods. If you're over 45, raise your hand. A nagging, I've got one right now. I've got a shoulder injury right now. It's one of those things where you don't want to quite get surgery because that knocks you out for a while. I've been told any. There's some kind of tear in there. And I'll go along if I try to swim or something. Then I, then I feel it. It's just, it's just nagging. It's just enough to bother you. And someday it'll make me probably go ahead and get the surgery. It's, I mean, I can do life, but I can't do it fully. Feel sorry for me. I know you do because you just had surgery. I mean, eventually it nagged you enough, Craig, and you got shoulder surgery. And I saw you there with your sling and the whole bit, and that scared me. That's why I don't want to get... <laughs> Shoulder surgery. Or think of it like the nagging woman, ladies, the nagging wife in Proverbs. Man, I got quiet when I said that, so let me read it. It's God's words, not mine. Proverbs 25, 24. It's better to live in the corner of a rooftop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome, and some Bibles say, nagging wife. I mean, men, that's probably true, right? Don't you agree? Wow. Marriage counseling is available for you or, well, see, that's, that's what the Sadducees were like. The Sadducees liked to debate everything. They liked to debate everything. You know, like some saying, you know, what a beautiful, you know, if you would have come in on a, on a last weekend, it was a beautiful weekend. I mean, it was like 72 on the dot, the perfect temperature, blue skies. But if you came in and a Sadducee was there and you said, what a beautiful blue sky and a beautiful day and the grass is so green and the daffodils are so yellow, the, fair, the Sadducees would be like, sure, 
Only the sky is blue as an illusion because the atmosphere is a mixture, I looked this up by the way, of gases and molecules and other materials surrounding the earth. It's made mostly of nitrogen, 78%, and oxygen, 21%. And the green grass you're referring to is really a type of weed that originated in Scotland, a type of creeping Bermuda that if left unchecked will kill your fescue and, all right, I just thought it was a beautiful day. I just, I just thought the sky was blue. And you came along and you ruined it. They would debate anything, everything. Ever met a person that likes to argue for argument's sake? That's the Sadducees. I mean, they literally, there, religious-wise, they were just taught, just rebuff everything, just debate everything. And when they saw Jesus come along, they took it up about 20 notches. That's the Sadducees. Like I said, the high priest was a Sadducee. He represented the people before God. He's like a Sadducee, the high priest on steroids. So he'd intercede for the people to God, and it was his job to offer the sacrifices that brought about forgiveness and cleansing for the people of God, the ultimate sacrifice and to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. It was a form and a force that dated back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. You see, when Jesus entered Jerusalem and made his way to the temple and cleansed the temple courts, think of it this way, he was stepping on some Sadducee toes. How so, Pastor? Well, he was a threat to the power and the place of that priestly party. I mean, that's why, and that part was accurate, when the high priest said, watch him, especially when he goes in the temple, don't let him ruin Passover. So when Jesus walked, I mean, some people see this, and it actually happened twice in Jesus' life. He didn't cleanse the temple just once. He actually did it at another point. And there was one time when he went in there, and he actually sat down real patiently. You know, you know how, many, how many of you, let me be honest, guys again, I'll pick on guys, I won't pick on, how many have, would say you, you have a short fuse? Anybody? Okay, thank you for being honest. I won't tick you guys off. Sometimes, I mean, you, you know, push you just a little bit, and you go, well, Jesus was, sat down and saw all this going on in the temple on one occasion. He sat down and he fashioned a whip. How long does that take? I've never built a whip in arts and crafts, but he was, sat down and he fashioned this whip. And then as he got it done, he stood up. And it wasn't turning over the tables, kind of like that was. I mean, Scripture says he took that whip and he drove people out. So he's pretty angry about what's going on in there. It wasn't a, a thing like, you know, clean this mess up and... and, and set this up a little bit better in the temple. He was furious with what was going on there. And that was the Sadducees' territory. So now he's got an enemy there. And now a storm is brewing there like never before. So he was a threat to their power. But he was a legitimate threat and is. Because the Bible says Jesus is himself both high priest and the once for all sacrifice for our sins. Okay, so those Sadducees and the high priests are setting up the ongoing sacrifice. And Jesus is coming into town and saying, it's going to end this week. In just a few days, there will be one last sacrifice. Better than sheep and goats and birds, and you'll never have to do this again. So he wasn't, about, he wasn't just stepping on toes. He was about to destroy the whole thing. Now listen, not do away with it, but fulfill it. A lot of times people say, Jesus came to do away with the law, right? No, he did not, and the scripture doesn't ever say that. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The thread, the scarlet thread in the Old Testament, Jesus came to bring that to fruition. You know what the law does? Well, keep listening, but we're going to talk about this a little bit. The law was made to point out your sin and my sin and then point out our need. I mean, to point out the impossibility of you pleasing God through your own works. The more laws that are added, the more you see, wow, I'm not even close. That's what the law is supposed to do. Only they took the law and they twisted it into something that we're supposed to use to get favor with God. It was never intended that way. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality itself. 
For this reason, it can never be the same by, or, or by the sacrifices repeatedly, year in and year out, do what Jesus did in his sacrifice. Otherwise, think of it this way, gang. Would they not have stopped? After one year or two years or five years? Why don't they say, you know what? It's a lot of sacrifice, a lot of goats, a lot of rams. I think we've hit the line. We're done now, never again. No, they had to keep doing it over and over again. And if Jesus didn't come, it'd just forever be doing this. And by the way, some people say, why is hell forever, never, never? Because you can never pay for your sins unless you receive Christ's ultimate sacrifice. If you don't do that, then you're trying to line up with the sacrifices that kept on going, and you're going to have to keep on going. Think about that. It's a little bit of a brain tease, but think about it. But they could have stopped because the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of their sins. At least that's what they were supposed to be. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats that are takeaway sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire. He's talking about his father. But a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Not ultimately. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God and my Father. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire. Nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law. Though they were offered in obedience to the law. Then he said, here am I. I have come to do your will. So here's what he does, gang. Listen closely. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Does that make sense? He sets aside the law now because I'm going to establish something better. Something better. If you've ever wanted to live in Old Testament times when the miracles were there or when Jesus walked, man, incredible to see all these things. Jesus actually says those of us that are alive now have it better. We have it better. They would have longed to have seen our day. Jesus came a high priest above all high priests and did not offer a bull or lamb as a sacrifice. Right? Why not? Because he offered himself. Because he offered himself. So when Jesus comes into my life, now here's how it relates to you and me. When he takes up residence in my heart, when I begin a day-by-day and moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus, like the whole marriage thing I was talking about, his saving and healing presence begins forgiveness and cleansing that no religious act could ever do. Might step on some toes with this one, but so what? How many of you, raise your hand if you grew up Catholic. Okay. Well, if you grew up Catholic, did you ever go to Catholic church, you know, ever go to mass and then just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done, I really feel good this week. I mean, I, I don't know what it was, but I really hit the zone. I confessed everything and his messages. I'm done, for the rest of my life I'm done. I'm never going back, I'm never confessing another thing because I don't know why I didn't have it before, but clearly I hit a line. Did you ever? No, right? No. You gotta go back, don't you? You gotta confess, you gotta keep on going. Well, it's like this. He said, it's never going to stop. In fact, sometimes going to church reminds us that we need to go to church, doesn't it? Sometimes going to church, all it does is remind us of our sins. But I don't have to take a precious offering to a priest to have my sins forgiven. I can have the high priest actually living in my heart. And when I have him, I have complete forgiveness and cleansing through his once-for-all sacrifice for me. So, 
Obviously, I'm not saying you never have to go to church again, so don't walk away and go, man, that was a good, today, that's it. I receive him. I mean, it should begin, that would be the same thing as saying, man, I feel closer to my wife today than ever, therefore I'm going to leave her because I'm done. Okay, that's not it. I mean, if you start that relationship, there's a real love thing, now you want to be with her all the time, right? Or I want to be with her, you don't want to be with her, I want to be with her all the time. So there's really two different subjects that we're talking about there. There is another way in which a true living relationship with Jesus also brings about far more than religion could ever do. Here's the second thing, get it down. When Jesus enters my life, righteousness comes to me because he's the fulfillment of the law. So what are you looking for? When you're a religious person trying to please God by jumping through hoops, what are you really looking for? Why do you do that? Why do, there are seven billion people on earth now. Why do about six billion of them do this? Because they're looking to be righteous. I mean, you can say, it's funny because when you talk to secular humanists, they'll say, man is basically good and we occasionally do bad things. Right? The Bible completely disagrees with that. The Bible says we are bad and born in sin and we occasionally do things that look good. And there's a difference. They're not even good because the motives are probably bad. Am I right? We do things that look good, but mainly we're trying to get people to think we look good, or we're trying to please God, so the motives aren't pure. And so we're basically bad, born in sin, and we're after that righteous feeling, that righteous position, and it's chasing a carrot at the end of the stick you'll never grab. You'll never grab it on your own effort. But when Jesus enters my life, righteousness comes to me because he's the fulfillment of the law. Again, Luke 19, two parties objected to Jesus' actions on that first Palm Sunday. It wasn't just the Sadducees, now it's the other group, the bigger group, the high pressure system, the Pharisees in verse 39. Like I said, they're more of a high pressure system. They were more constantly in Jesus' face. They were like gnats buzzing around. You couldn't get rid of them. It's possible to have a good day when there's gnats constantly buzzing in your face. But try to ramp it up for this week and imagine if there were not five or ten gnats buzzing in your face, but five or ten African killer bees buzzing around in your face. That's even worse, right? They're not just there annoying. They're there trying to kill you. They're there trying to set up a, a, a way they can stone you, drive you out, anything to Jesus. Constant pressure, high pressure from the Pharisees. They were the teachers of the law. Not so much the keepers of the temple, but the teachers of the law and the rabbis. They taught the law of Moses in huge detail. And they identified not just the Ten Commandments, but 613 separate laws that God had given to the people and insisted on obedience to every single one of them for you and me. Not for them, ironically, but for you and me. And they would say in public, we keep these laws. In private, they were hypocrites, just like Jesus said, the, the actor playing Jesus said on that. More than that, they added traditions even to the 613 laws that were intended to keep people from ever getting close to breaking one of God's commandments, to not even run a danger of breaking the commandments. Better safe than sorry, you might say. But of course, from the giving of the law through Moses to the time of Jesus, not one human being had ever kept the law perfectly. How many of you know who the Olsen twins are? Academy Oscar award-winning actors, the Olsen twins. I mean, that's like saying in order for you to be accepted, in order for you to please God, you have to bench press a car. The skinny little fragile Olsen twins. That's something you can tell them, and it's easy to understand, right? They're never going to do it. 
It's never going to happen because it's so frail. The law that they were giving has never been fulfilled by any human being, and it never was going to be fulfilled. And as you look back in history, I mean, it's a depressing thought. How do we get close? By keeping all these things. By the way, next year we should add about 20 more laws. And the year after that, more and more and more and more. And the burden is just weighing you down. There's no joy in that. Jesus didn't come to bring religion, gang. Never. Look how huge religion is. In fact, it's been in the papers and all in the last couple of weeks, right? I mean, we're all just on edge. When's the next pope? Who's, is it going to be white smoke or black smoke coming out? I mean, what? All, just, but I was hearing just a lot of religion. I was. I don't know about you. Religion, religion, religion. I didn't hear a lot about Jesus during that time. He came to bring himself and a relationship. Never religion for religion's sake. Never more rules. In fact, one accomplished Pharisee later wrote, this guy went by the name of Paul. He wrote, the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. It is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3, 9. Paul wrote that. Who many consider to be the greatest Christian, follower of Christ of all time. Including him. He said he was the chief of all sinners. So, despite all the Pharisees' efforts, no one, not even one soul, has ever managed to keep the law or ever would on their own. Because the law was not given to make us righteous. Are you following the trap here? The law was never given for you to fulfill it and please God. It was never the intention of it. In fact, the Bible says the law was given to show us our sin. To show us our sin. Now, anybody ever drive in Germany? Real high hands. You driven in Germany? How about the Autobahn? You drive on that? How fast did you go? 130? You decadent. <laughs> I would love to do that. That'd be pretty cool. I bet you didn't feel bad. I wouldn't either. Anybody else ever been in Germany? Ever drive on the Autobahn? Anybody? We got to live a little, don't we? Listen, if you're driving on the Autobahn, 130, you're not going to feel bad. If you grew up in Germany and you have to travel it every day, you're not going to feel bad, right? Because there's no speed limit. Isn't there one now? I heard they're starting to put one there. It's like 150 or something. Just keep things in check. But, but there used to be no speed limit. You go as fast as you want. You got a car that goes 200, good luck. I mean, try and do it. But you come here, and if you, let's say you grew up there and you somehow didn't know, and you come here and you go 130 on 84, there's going to be a little something called blue and red lights in the rearview mirror, and you're going to know. But see, that law there, that speed limit's there in order to point out that you're speeding, that you're breaking the law. That's all it's for. It's to point out that, hey, you know what? You're not that good. You're not someone that really complies. You're a speeder. I mean, obviously, there's a lot worse things there. Look at the Ten Commandments. But it's, an, it's, it's sort of guardrails, isn't it? It's sort of a hurting thing spiritually that the Lord is using to push you towards himself. I don't need you. I'm a good person. Well, look at this law. Oh, and so that pushes you more towards him. Well, I'm pretty good. I don't break the law. But you break this over here, and it pushes you right back on this path, and you keep going. And pretty soon, every one of us faces Jesus Christ. And we realize, I, I can't keep all this. What do I do? You need me. You need me. And if you've never been thankful before that he didn't stop, this is the week you ought to thank God that he didn't turn to the right or left but kept going to the cross in the middle of this storm. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. In other words, the law exists so that you and I, all of us, know we're sinners. Why? Because we're in trouble. 
We're in trouble. We're in extreme danger. Adam and Eve put us in this mess. Oh, you're not going to tell me you believe that stuff. Yeah, I, I do. I literally believe that. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, so I believe this. The problem is we're in trouble, but most of us just don't know it. We just don't know. So we should know that we need a Savior, and that's why the law is there, and that, that's where Jesus comes in. He's the fulfillment of the law. He said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. By the way, why do I think it's, it's incredible that, that even theologians will teach that when Jesus came along, he did away with the law? I'm not that sharp, but verses like this seem to contradict that, don't they? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Isn't that pretty simple, or is that just me? Jesus is saying, I didn't do that. I, I'm not going to do away with it. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Okay, well, how does that work? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So when he enters my life, when I by faith enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law takes up residence in me. What's the difference? So it's not Rob Singleton trying to look at this and go, I'm going to try my best to do this stuff. Or like the Pharisees, I've got the 613 laws. You know, some of them put them in miniature in a headband. How stylish is that? And wore it so they'd have the law right there and memorized it. Well, that doesn't even help. That doesn't, you can't keep it. So what Jesus said is, I will come into your heart and write my law on your heart. So when the Holy Spirit lives within you, all of a sudden you know. When you hurt God, guess what? You know. That conviction you feel, that's not just guilt, that's the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus told that Pharisee that came and talked to him and he said, what's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbors yourself. These are the two greatest commandments and all the other law of the prophets hinge on this. Why? He's saying, have a relationship with me and actually love me and then the rest will take care of itself. The power is in a relationship. Jesus came to bring a relationship. He never came to bring religion because that'll actually hurt. But he used religion and the Bible uses religion to point to Jesus. When he enters my life, righteousness enters my life because he is righteousness. The Bible says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when I have Jesus living in me, I have righteousness living in me and flowing out from me. In Romans 5, verse 17, Paul again, he says, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus enters my life, forgiveness comes to me because of the sacrifice he made for me as my high priest. And righteousness comes too because he's the fulfillment of the law. And there's one more way in which a true living relationship with Jesus does more for me. I told you there were going to be three things than religion ever could. Here's the third thing. Write it down. When Jesus enters my life, a new power comes to me. Why? Because he's my king. When Jesus enters my life, a new power comes to me because he's my king. <clears throat> you saw it in the video that we just showed. You probably heard the story. A few days after entering the city, Jesus was arrested and placed on trial. We actually didn't get as far as that. And he was shuttled between King Herod, the self-styled king of the Jews, and Pilate, the governor and the representative of the Roman Empire. Think of it this way, between President Obama and Governor Pat McCrory. He's put the highest authority in the land right there and a self-appointed one back and forth, back and forth, 
There were six trials all night long that went on with Jesus. Why? Because they couldn't quite get him on anything. And they couldn't decide who was going to put him to death. And everybody, knowing he was innocent, tried to push him off to the next person. So it took six trials, six illegal trials, and they never did get to it. They just kept kind of playing this, this ping pong match back and forth. These earthly rulers supposedly had the power to pardon or sentence Jesus, yet the whole time Jesus stood before these rulers, who really had the power? In fact, what did Pilate say to Jesus when he panicked? See, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and in his own way, he was trying, saying, you got to give me something, Jesus. Don't you know, what? Don't you know that I have the power to put you to death or to release you? Give me something. And what did Jesus say? There's a lot of power floating around right now. This is the Rob Singleton paraphrase. There's a lot of power floating around right now, Pilate, but it's not yours. There's a lot of storms brewing right now, but yours is not the greatest. The power right now, you would have no authority, no power, no position at all at this moment in time if my Father in heaven didn't give it to you. You're a pawn, Pilate in order that I get to the cross. You're being used, but you don't have the power. It's predicted long ago that you would do what you would do. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Jesus wasn't going to lie. He couldn't deny his kingship. They could arrest him, but he was still king, right? They could imprison him, but he's still king. They could flog him, beat him, and nail him to a cross, but he's still king. doesn't change it, and so he is. And gang, this is why after Jesus had died and rose from the dead, his closest followers asked him, Lord, are you now going to set up and restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it, is it now, maybe? In other words, are you going to take your throne and exert all your power and, of course, share it with us? And you look at these people and you say, well, why did, they're clueless. Why didn't they get what he was doing? Well, they're not clueless. Jesus is going to do that. They just had the cart before the horse. He's doing something much more important here. See, he can't set up a righteous kingdom with a bunch of sinners ruling it, right? So first he has to solve the sin problem, a much bigger problem. And one day he'll return and he'll set up his kingdom. So they didn't fully understand that Jesus was a different kind of king. That's the problem. And a lot of us don't understand that Jesus is a different kind of king. Even this time of year when we talk about it. And his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. But he knew what they were asking, so he answered Now, please listen to this. For those of you that wonder where the power comes and live in the Christian life, listen to these words from Jesus. But you will receive power. You will receive power. It's maybe not the kind you think, but I'll be with you and you'll receive power. It would not be political power. It would not be temporal power. He told them that theirs would be a power of a different kind, but no less real. In fact, more powerful. Power to testify to Jesus' kingship, as they all did so powerfully on the day of Pentecost. When the church was born, listen to all these. Power to heal as Peter and John demonstrated in healing the beggar at the temple. Power to turn weakness into strength as Paul experienced after his conversion on the road to Damascus. Power to resist temptation as probably anyone sitting here who's a believer has experienced. Power to conquer evil. Power to withstand persecution. Power to change the world as the entire book of Acts reveals. You will receive power. It's just a different kind, a better kind. And that power is yours This Palm Sunday and Easter time of year, if you'll just reach out and take it. If you'll just reach out and take it. A new power comes to you because he's your king or can be your king. 
All the power of the kingdom comes when the king enters in. That's what Jesus meant when he told his very first followers, listen to this, John 14, 12, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing and he'll do even greater things than these. Okay, that doesn't mean that you all should go up to Lake Norman and get out of the boat and try to walk on it. Well, Jesus did it. I'm gonna walk even further. No, it doesn't mean the, the miracles that you can take them all up a notch. It means that in the scope of bringing loss to him and seeing the gospel go out, we'll reach more now than even he reached. We'll do greater things in the biblical eternal scheme of things than even he did. It's not a miracle competition. It's not a magician competition. It's a salvation thing. And they're bold words, but they're true. All this can actually be yours, and it's amazing to me that people want to try and jump through hoops to please God when it can be yours through faith. So here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. And I've thought a lot about this. I've been doing this for years and years and years at camps with youth, uh, as a pastor at church, and, and I always try and make sure that this moment is not taken lightly. Did you know there's no prayer? Sometimes you hear people say, recite this prayer and you'll be born again. That's not true. Gang, that's not true. You can't recite a prayer and take care of your sin problem. You can reach out from your heart in repentance and sorrow and receive his gift from your heart and be born again. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? The difference is huge. It's not, there's no magic words, there's no magic prayer. There's just reaching out and trusting Christ in your heart. Now, that being said, I still would love to lead you because you may not know how. You may feel in your heart that you want to come home, you want to confess your sins, you want to trust in Christ. I'd be happy to walk you through that, but I'm telling you, if you just recite the words mechanically, then nothing will happen. But if you know the position you're in, if you've heard my words this morning, which I hope are the Lord's, and you know your position is not right before the Lord, you can remedy that right now by just crying out to Him in trust and forgiveness. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I've tried and failed to do good and to live a righteous life before you. Pray silently in your heart after me. I've lived by my own efforts and I don't deserve your forgiveness. Lord, I didn't even know it, but I've tried to get your attention through good works and good words and good relationships and to try to be in good standing. I can't achieve righteousness and I know that. I have no power in myself to live the kind of life I want and now I know that. I cannot jump through hoops. I cannot do enough good to rescue myself from the storm that's come in my life, the storm that sin has caused. And so today, right now, Lord Jesus, I thank you for standing in the gap for me and in my heart, I reach out and take your hand. Lord, pull me up from the despair and the lostness of my life with complete surrender and trust. Bring me home. 
adopt me into your family as your son or daughter. For it's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray for the first time really understanding and meaning it. Amen. You guys can open your eyes. And Did I see Philip here or James? Are they here? Philip, Phil's gonna stand up. Listen, they, and James is in the back. James, you guys look back and you'll see James and Philip. Listen, they have a booth out front and if you pray that prayer, here's a couple things I want you to do. Bring your card back there. Check on there that you committed your life to Christ. See, this is a journey. This is a journey. You just started it. Your life begins right now as an adopted son or daughter. Tell somebody. Tell them. We have a gift that we want to give you. We have a new Bible we want to give you and some other things. And we want to be your family and wrap ourselves around you. You know, it's funny. Jesus never looked for any secret admirers. He doesn't want you to go undercover now. And if you do, you have a possibility of being snatched away if you don't quite understand or didn't take root. So please go back there and get our gift and start this wonderful journey and celebration with the Lord. If you prayed that prayer and didn't recite it, but cried out in your heart to the Lord, the Bible says, if you confess him before men, he'll confess you before the Father. He who believes in me and trusts in me shall be saved. It's kind of weird. The, the word throughout Scripture is a simple word. It's just believe. And yet you get to the book of James and it says even the demons and the devil believes, but they're not saved. The simplicity of it is something even a seven-year-old child can understand or a five-year-old child can understand. Love him, trust him, and begin this walk with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sending of your son, Lord, and Jesus. Thank you for your indescribable gift. Lord, hopefully we've thought of it a way we never have before, Lord. Thank you for sailing through, resolute and focused, that perfect storm 2,000 years ago. We could see that your enemies didn't want you to go to the cross, and yet they did want you to go. We could see that Satan wanted to defeat you, and yet didn't want you to pay for the sins that kept us locked up and in bondage to him. We could see that your disciples wanted their sins forgiven, and they didn't want you to go to the cross. So many factors, Lord, conspiring against you, and yet you just walked on resolute. And even the night, Lord, that you prayed in the garden, sweating drops of blood, there's the scarlet thread again. Father, thank you for loving us enough to never turn back for setting a mission even thousands of years before you came, before you send your son. Thank you for loving one even such as I. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us, gang. See you next week.